school, I spent a lot of time learning about stories. And in one class in particular, we explored how stories are told. There's a lot of ways to tell a story, as you might imagine. In most cases, we expect a story to be told from the beginning to the end. And a lot of stories follow this path. Yet some of the most famous stories start in the middle and then jump to the beginning and then meander their way to the end. Homer's Odyssey is like that. But in the tool belt of every genuinely clever storyteller is a tool that we refer to as braiding. Braiding. To teach us how braiding worked, our teacher showed us a photo of challah I suppose if you bake, you may be familiar with challah bread, so you'll have to bear with me. But challah bread is a traditional Jewish bread loaf. It's light and fluffy, but perhaps one of its most distinctive features is that it's braided. Three threads or more of dough are set alongside one another, and then they're literally braided together as if each were a lock of a little girl's hair, so that the end result is a lovely twisting and rolling heap. And after it's egg washed and baked, it looks a lot like this, and it's absolutely delicious. Yeah, exactly. In storytelling, braiding is like baking a loaf of challah bread. To do it well, you must arrange two or three narrative threads, maybe more if you're daring, and as the story unfolds, you loop them back and forth over one another. To do this, often you have to set aside the constraints of a timeline and risk shifting your audience's expectations, but the end result is a delicious arrangement of vignettes and scenes and threads of dialogue each of which informs the other, so that you learn more from the stories twisted around one another than you learn if they were all laid out in a more reasonable sequence. In a word, each thread complements the others nicely. When it's done well, it works brilliantly. And that's what Matthew is doing in our passage today. The passage we're about to read is a rolling braid of two scenes and four short stories. In one scene, we stand on a lakeside beach It's dawn, and we're jostled this way and that amidst a crowd of Jews bristling with curiosity as they await the teaching of an exciting new rabbi. Men, women, and children from all over Palestine, some of whom have walked for days in hope of seeing something incredible. They've heard rumors of blind men seeing, leopards cleansed. Lepers, not leopards. It's different. (laughs) Lepers cleansed and even the dead raised. And wouldn't that be a great story? If that weren't enough, humming through the masses is the whisper that this guy might even be the promised Messiah. In another scene, we're seated on the dusty floor of a lake house, privately speaking with the teacher himself. It's late, and most of the crowds have dispersed to their home or somewhere nearby to eat and rest. But the few that remain are Jesus' closest friends and followers. They aren't interested in resting because they have questions that they know only Jesus can answer. Something about these stories struck them as profound, but their true nature and meaning are beyond their grasp. So they go directly to Jesus, and they sit at His feet, and they listen. And punctuating both of these scenes is the telling of four stories. Fables about seeds and weeds, riddles about crops and farmers and enemies and gardens. Two scenes and four stories woven together in a complex braid and baked into a fluffy loaf. Each scene interrupts the other twice, and each story is illuminated by the ears that hear them. 
And because of that brilliant tangle of knots, we're given an opportunity to understand the whole more profoundly. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start by reading the passage together. Open your Bibles to Matthew 13. Uh, We're going to start reading in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to, them, said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed. Lest they, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the word, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. 
It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay. Now that was a lot of reading. And maybe the simple way to study this passage would have been to break it into bits and teach each part in a long series of sermons. But actually, this passage is meant to be read as one cohesive unit. In fact, not only this passage, but from verse 1 of this chapter all the way to verse 52 is meant, I think, to be read as a single unit. So we're going to take the path less traveled and grapple with the whole. Now, we've already acknowledged that this passage is complex, so the challenge will be to wrap our mind around the whole loaf without losing the significance of each individual thread. To do this, we'll need to simplify a bit. Unravel the braid and highlight the most significant thread that ties it together. That's the goal today. If you are paying attention to what we just read, you'll notice that this passage seems to revolve around parables. And not just the stories that Jesus tells, but why he tells them. And how they're heard and understood. That's the thread we're going to focus on because I think it's the key to understanding the whole bit. So let's get started. You might miss the first detail, but it's important. The scene unfolds outside of a lake house, apparently a place that Jesus stayed on occasion, likely in Capernaum. And just before speaking, Matthew tells us that he leaves, Jesus leaves this house. That's significant, because later, after he's told uh, these parables to the crowds, Jesus goes back into the house, and his disciples follow follow him. Twice in this chapter, his disciples ask him for an explanation of the stories he's told. And unless you believe that the disciples stopped Jesus' discourse the first time to pull him aside privately and ask for an explanation, the most logical explanation is that Christ's explanation of the sower story and his explanation of the weed story unfold at the same time after Jesus returns to his home and the crowds disperse. The reason I'm highlighting this now because it's a visible, tangible representation of what Christ is about to teach. More on that later. Let's read his words again. The disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 
For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes, have, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So after hearing Christ's words about the sower and about the weeds, Jesus' disciples privately approach him to ask why he speaks to the crowd in parables. Parables. It's an interesting word that we don't use very often except when we're talking about parables, which isn't entirely helpful. And we'll need to understand that word and its meaning before we go any further. So what is a parable? The best I can do to define that word is to ask you to hold in your mind two distinct concepts. Neither neither concept fully captures the nature of parables, but they're both necessary, I think, to understand how parables work. On the one hand, think about a fable. Are you familiar with fables? Even if you didn't know the word, I think you'll recognize the idea. A fable is a story about things that everybody understands, told to shed light on much more profound matters. Like the tortoise and the hare or the boy who cried wolf, a fable is a story about simple things to help you grasp more complex things, like the virtue of steady perseverance in the face of adversity or the importance of trust and credibility. It's important to note at this point that fables typically begin with the story about simple things and then you're given an interpretation, a key that unlocks the meaning of those simple things so they can help you grasp the complex ideas. On the other hand, think about a riddle. A riddle is a carefully arranged word puzzle. Riddles, too, direct our attention to things which everybody understands, and riddles, too, revolve around more profound matters. Yet riddles are crafted not to illuminate these profound matters, but to conceal them. Let me give you an example. Probably a lot of you will have heard this. Voiceless it cries, wingless flutters. Toothless bites, mouthless mutters. I stole this from Tolkien. And I like this example because it illustrates the point point nicely. You'll notice that everyone is familiar with voices crying, wings fluttering, teeth biting, and mouths muttering. But these simple, tangible ideas relate to a more profound thing. Except in the case of a riddle, that key that unlocks the meaning is not given Because the point of a riddle is to conceal, whereas the point of a fable is to illuminate. The answer, by the way, is wind. The wind. Voiceless it cries, wingless flutters, toothless bites, mouthless mutters. And the reason we're exploring fables and riddles is because parables work kind of like both at the same time. Or more precisely, a parable works like a fable when it's facing one direction and like a riddle when it's facing another direction. 
When asked why he speaks to the crowds in parables, Jesus says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's why I speak to them in riddles, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now I think that's interesting, because you might expect Jesus' answer to be simpler than that. Rather than saying merely, because they do not see, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, which seems to be the most direct answer, Jesus responds by directing his disciples' attention to the distinction between his followers and the crowds. He says, You've been given the secrets of the kingdom, but they haven't. So immediately it becomes apparent that by way of parables, Jesus is granting secret knowledge to some and withholding it from others. But at least initially, you might notice, the the disciples' grasp of the parable isn't any more profound than the crowd's. So what does Jesus mean? Look down at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. In other words, when the disciples draw near to Jesus, He gives them the key to understand the meaning of the story. For them, in that interaction, the riddle has transformed into a fable. And that's the magic of a parable. Throughout this book, we've noticed crowds gathering around Jesus. He's famous, and a lot of people rush to see Him. Some gather for the spectacle. Some long for healing. Some seek Him for the latest teaching. And some hope to find in Jesus the Messiah King who will crush the Romans. But throughout this story, Jesus is surrounded by crowds. And if you kept reading, you'd see that when it really matters, those crowds are screaming, crucify Him. So if you don't know anything about Jesus, you might expect that shift in the crowds to take Him by surprise. But from day one, Jesus knows those who are His. Those seeds the farmer planted in the good soil, whose seeds would yield yield fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. From day one, Jesus could see the wheat from the weeds. And the brilliance of the parable is that it works in both directions, accomplishing the sovereign purposes of God. For those with no root planted by the enemy to upend the good harvest... The parables hide the secrets of the kingdom in plain sight. But for those rooted in good soil, uncorrupted by the enemy in the world, the parable illuminates the secrets of the kingdom of God. To teach us about this divide, Jesus tells, us, tells His disciples that to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And those words are actually illustrated in the scene that Matthew describes. Privately, in the house, Jesus' closest friends and followers huddle around the Master. And he teaches them the secrets of the kingdom while the crowds disperse. That shift in scene is there on purpose. Look at verse 36. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. When you read that, word, when, when you read that sentence, 
that shift from public to private, that shift from the masses to the few, you're being painted a picture of the nature of parables and the sovereign grace of God. And if we're going to look ahead for a moment at next week, that picture models the nature of the kingdom and illuminates the parables of Jesus. Three quarters of the weeds cast are ruined or consumed. The field is riddled with weeds. The seed of the kingdom is the smallest of all seeds. Just a touch of leaven for such a, such a large measure of flour. Yet those few seeds rooted in good soil produce fruit 100-fold. The wheat makes it to harvest to the glory of God. The mustard seed becomes larger than all the, seed, all the trees in the garden. And every ounce of flour is leavened. Are you starting to see it? This passage is about the secret nature of the kingdom, upending all the expectations of the crowds who longed for a Saul, tall and handsome warrior, a king like the nations, and they got a David, a young and ruddy shepherd singing praises in the field. Before we go any further, I want to draw nearer to the language that Jesus is using and the text he cites. First, he says, It's been given to his people to know the secrets of the kingdom. That word is interesting because in the Greek it's literally the mysterion, a word that has made its way directly to English as mystery. But the translation of the scriptures we use, and most others, translate this word as secret. And I think the reason is pretty cool. The English word mystery has taken on a lot of baggage, and in a lot of senses, And a lot of uses, the sense has come to refer to something that's impossible to understand, something that won't ever be revealed. But that's absolutely not the sense here. In fact, when Mark is reflecting on this same moment, he recalls Jesus' words, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. That's the nature of the secrets of the kingdom. These are secrets hidden from the dawn of ages so that God in His glorious grace could reveal reveal them to His people. That's the sort of God we serve. A God who delights to show His people secrets hidden from the dawn of time. In fact, take a look at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Matthew tells us that Jesus' teaching fulfills the prophetic mission foreshadowed in Psalm 78. And if you were to go back and read that psalm, you'd find Asaph retelling the story of the history of Israel. And what's puzzling about this song is that he doesn't really seem to be saying anything new. Almost immediately we find the words, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. And the sense of these words, dark sayings, is that these are hidden things. These are secret things. But when he begins to speak, he directs our attention to Jacob and to the law and to the people of Israel and to the covenant. These are things that every faithful Israelite knows. So what does that mean? Dark sayings, secret things. See, threaded throughout Asaph's song is the why. Asaph pulls back the curtain and explains the secret will of God in the orchestration of the history of Israel. 
The secret things, these dark sayings of old, are the hidden purposes of God in the history of Israel. His sovereign reign over Israel's history to make a people ready for the coming Son of David. And when Matthew says that Jesus' teaching is a fulfillment of Asaph's word, he reveals that parables, when they fall upon ears that hear, are finally revealing the secret things that God's hidden since day one. The brilliant and lovely and majestic secrets of the kingdom that God delights to reveal to His blood-bought people. So when the disciples ask Jesus why He speaks in parables, that's one half of the answer. The other half is captured in a prophecy from Isaiah. And the use of this passage is brilliant and remarkable because the structure of this passage is a singular display of artistry and literary skill. And that makes sense because it's God speaking. (laughs) And he's pretty good at it. In the past we've spoken about chiasm. Uh, I really like chiasm. I talk about it as often as it occurs. And Brett makes fun of me. And so do others. But it's cool. It's a burden I bear. (laughs) In Greek, chi looks like this. It looks like an X. Okay? Ancient writers, especially good ones, would sometimes draw a big shiny X in their writings so that readers could quickly and easily see the point of the passage. We call this type of writing chiastic, and we would call a passage like this a chiasm, and I'm sorry for all that silly abstraction, because it's really as simple as X marks the spot. It's a treasure map that points you to the treasure chest, and that's how this passage works. Jesus' words here are chiastic. Let me show you. Uh, You may not be able to read these words because they're quite small, but I couldn't actually fit it in such a way that you could read it and also see the shape of it because it's quite a long passage. But I'll read it to you. I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. This is all ascending into the center. And their their eyes have closed, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should turn again and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. X marks the spot. At the center of this passage is the willfully closed eyes of the crowds. And as you build towards that center, you encounter the calloused hearts of those who have set themselves against the words and work of God. But every line in this chiasm has a parallel. And as you trace the movement, it resolves on the tremendous mercy of God towards His people who, unlike the crowd, are blessed for their eyes see and their ears hear. The answer to the question why parables is actually visualized in this moment. Parables are a display of the terrible judgment and the spectacular mercy of God. Terrible judgment for blind eyes and stopped up ears and hardened hearts, but spectacular mercy for those whose eyes have been opened and whose ears now hear. For those to whom God has granted mercy, behold the secrets of the kingdom, which even the prophets and righteous men longed to see. 
That's why. That's the answer. Parables are a tool of the Son to accomplish the sovereign will of the Father. God's sovereign will. Election. The King's decision to show mercy to some and not to others. A lot of people who study the Bible have studied this passage, and not a few of them will go far out of their way to hide what this passage plainly suggests. God, like it or not, is King. And He decides. Behind these words, behind Christ's work, behind the parables of Jesus and the prophecy of Isaiah and the song of Asaph, is the sobering notion of God's sovereign will over redemption. And not a lot of people like thinking about that. To be honest, sometimes I don't. Because if you follow the logic of this passage and this prophecy and this song, you'll come face to face with God's decision to respond to the sin, the sin of some with terrible judgment and to respond to the sin of others with breathtaking mercy. And if that notion bothers you, I understand. And I don't have all the answers, and I don't quite know what to say, except that God at the core of His character is kind, and He's gentle, and He's patient, and He's merciful, and He's just, and He's righteous, and He's holy. And if you can trust that anyone's decisions are the right ones, it's Him. He decides. And His purposes, while they may remain unknown to us, are glorious and trustworthy. And we who count ourselves His people by the grace of Christ and the mercy of God are taught in this passage and throughout the Scriptures to praise. Praise is the only right response to the mercy that God shows His people. Unwarranted. Unmerited. Okay. That's one thread of dough. I think the most important thread in the loaf if we're to walk away with an understanding of this passage. We'll work to unravel the rest next week. In the meantime, I can think of a few ways that this passage ought to change you. First, think about the judgment and mercy of God. This is perhaps the most basic and has the potential to be the most life-changing. The fact that Jesus spoke in parables to accomplish the sovereign will of God the fact that Jesus' words were riddles to some and fables to others, the fact that hardness of heart has made men blind and deaf without hope for repentance, you should spend time meditating on these things. Sin blinds. Sin deafens. Sin calluses. Always. That's what sin does. And open eyes... Ears that hear, hearts that understand are a display of the dramatic mercy of God. Meditate on it. Spend a few hours this week reflecting on it. Think about your own sin in light of that terrible blindness, that horrifying deafness. Do you see and hear? Do you understand? Reflect on the mercy of of God to give you new eyes and new ears and a heart that understands. Let the dark spectacle of blind eyes and hardened hearts fuel your pursuit of purity. Let it fuel your pursuit of holiness. Let it stir in your heart hatred for sin. Let it stir in your heart a dread of rebellion. 
And let the dramatic display of God's mercy fuel your praise. Let it drive you to the Word of God, which you can hear now, and which you can see now, and which you can understand now. What marvelous mercy that you can see though once blind, that you can hear though once deaf. Let that mercy push you to gaze upon that which you now see, to listen for that which you can now hear. Second, are you confused? Ask the teacher. Something that happens in this story that could easily be missed, but if you catch it, it'll change the way you read the Bible. Notice that the disciples are right there along the crowds by being confused. They're just right there. When they're listening to the stories of Jesus, they don't get it at all. I can relate. Can you? But look at what happens next. They don't just sit there. They aren't passive. When the Master is finished teaching and returns to the house, they don't leave with the crowds. They go to Jesus and they ask Him. And do you know what? He teaches them what His Word means. I think this is how we ought to read the Bible. I think this is how we ought to read the Word of God. What do you do when you don't understand what you're reading? What do you do when it bothers you? What do you do when it doesn't make sense? Or worse, when it leaves you unsettled? Go to Jesus. Ask Him, just like His disciples did. To be clear, I'm asking you to pray. Ask for help. He's there and He delights in your pursuit. He'll help, I promise. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It's still a good idea to read books that were written to help you answer questions. And it's still a good idea to bring your questions to mature brothers and sisters because they might be able to help too. But your gut instinct, your first course of action should be, go to, should be to go to the God who spoke these words and who has invited you to ask for His help literally whenever you need it. Finally, are you fearing the judgment of God? Take heart. I can't count how many times I've spoken with a brother or sister who in the, in the midst of a dark valley questions whether they've been granted mercy. It's not a new question. Read the biography of Spurgeon. I can't remember how many years he was like just trembling, terrified that he may not be elect. When you're fighting sin and failing, that question looms. You find yourself asking at a fundamental level whether God in His sovereignty has granted redemption to you or whether you're as blind and deaf as ever, whether your hardened heart has led you to this dark valley. And if, that, if that's you, I want you to think carefully about this passage. What sets the disciples apart from the crowds? To what signal does Jesus de- direct their attention? What experience, what knowledge operates as a sign to Christ's disciples that they've been granted mercy? He teaches them the meaning of the parable. Their hearing the meaning of this parable is a sign to them that they've been given ears to hear and eyes to see. That Jesus is willing to sit down and explain the meaning of these stories as a demonstration of the mercy of God. And when we read this passage, we sit right there alongside them and we hear what they hear. 
that you are sitting here right now, listening to Christ's words, that you are sitting here reflecting on the secrets of the kingdom is a pretty strong signal that you have great and lasting hope in the mercy of God. I don't mean to give you any false confidence. Any so-called comfort that encourages you to stop seeking, stop pursuing, isn't comfort at all. But with Paul, we can confidently say that God puts you here, that you would seek Him and perhaps feel your way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from each one of us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear.